Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. Uh, we are in the middle of a uh, detailed discussion on uh, substance-related and addictive disorders, and in particular, opioid use disorder. Uh, earlier podcasts, previous podcasts, we have discussed the diagnostic criterion for not only opioid use disorder, but any uh, substance, illicit substance use disorder in general terms, uh, as well as, uh, and that is according to the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, 5th edition. Uh, We've also uh, taken a look at the American Society of Addiction Medicine's Treatment Matrix, uh, which basically offers in the level of care and those factors that go into the determination of what is the appropriate level of care, all with the presumption that a good diagnosis as well as uh, uh, properly ascertaining the appropriate uh, level of care is going to equal to success, uh, a good outcome. And uh, last uh, podcast particularly, uh, we discussed then the, uh, again, use of the ASAM, American Society of Addiction Medicines, treatment plan matrix or level of care matrix uh, that goes into our treatment plan. And uh, with that, we took a look at uh, the uh, not only different levels of care, but just reviewed once more uh, the different dimensions uh, of intoxication withdrawal potential, biomedical conditions that complicate uh, emotional behavioral issues that might uh, go along with the uh, use of the illicit substances or substance, Uh, the readiness for change, the relapse and continued use potential, uh, as well as living environment. Uh, We've specifically addressed as well early intervention, which is 0.5 level of care, uh, outpatient level one, outpatient opioid treatment program level one, the use of Suboxone. And today, on today's podcast, we are going to uh, move that to another level of care, uh, more intense, I should say, level of care, and that would be 2.5, excuse me, 1, and that would be intensive outpatient treatment. And once more, this is all according to the American Society of Addiction Medicine's uh, matrix, level of care matrix. Uh, that uh, factors in the different dimensions and then helps one to determine what is the appropriate level of care as uh, with that meeting of particular uh, uh, criterion that goes along with those different dimensions and then uh, with that having the greatest hope of uh, a good outcome uh, without having to uh, increase that level of care, be able to stop the use of the illicit substance Uh, and uh, then return a person to, hopefully, if it is maintenance, uh, a lesser level of care. Uh, And again, the levels of care, pretty in a pretty general sort of way, just speak to uh, the the dimension as well, or at least the aspect as well, of uh, restriction. Uh, If you can do it on your own, then education is enough. If you can't do it on your own with education only, 
then outpatient care is a bit more restrictive. There's a bit more accountability. Uh, there's more effort that needs to go into uh, helping or assisting a person to no longer use the illicit substance. And with that, the accountability aspect or portion of that is that uh, they have to come in and actually speak to someone and they have to report um, more than just themselves, uh, which could be easier again than to uh, somehow uh, deny, uh, I hate to use the word or the phrase lie to oneself, but that basically is what denial is and uh, others. And of course, it is all with a trained a person trained uh, in uh, not only substance use, uh, but also interventions, uh, how to treat it. So it makes it a bit more difficult to uh, avoid and uh, lie about it, uh, deceive, covered up uh, your use, that is, or continued use. Uh, outpatient then is, in that way, more restrictive. Uh, Opioid treatment program, an OTP, or medication-assist treatment, also it's known as a medication-assist treatment, uh, the use of Suboxone has some of that same dimension of restriction. Uh, again, that element of restriction, it's more restrictive. The accountability is the same. We just add to it the dimension of a, of a medication that really in some ways is a bit, even a bit more restrictive in that you have to have the medicine. Uh, whereas with uh, just uh, outpatient, there's no medications. Uh, those individuals who are on Suboxone, uh, have used Suboxone, will tell you that uh, you have to have the medication. If you don't, then there's the risk of some withdrawal even with the Suboxone. But when we get to intensive outpatient treatment, it does not necessarily mean that we're going to continue with medication assist, although that could be a part of it. Uh, but in a more, again, generic or general sort of term, level 2.1, which is the next level, more intense, also more restrictive, where we are uh, uh, actually uh, asserting, exerting, it's a better word, some control over the individual, a bit more of that, as well as the accountability uh, factor. Uh, it is more than just simply once a week. It uh, can go up to many visits or sessions, uh, and if you measure that by hours, multiple hours within a week. That's the more intensive part, and uh, you have to come. So instead of Traditionally, once a week, which would be, again, traditional, the outpatient model in a more normal context, intensive outpatient would be several visits or several hours, several sessions over the course of a week. When it comes to the different dimensions, such as, again, intoxication withdrawal potential, there's really no difference between outpatient and intensive outpatient. Uh, with the exception, once more, of the uh, medication assist or the opioid treatment program, where with the Suboxone, there is a moderate to high risk of intoxication or withdrawal potential. That's why we add that buprenorphine-naloxone combination medication uh, in order to uh, mitigate that. Uh, but when it comes to outpatient, uh, as you may recall, the intoxication withdrawal potential 
is none or manageable in one withdrawal management, which basically means once the person goes through some level of detox or that stage of withdrawal, which is always uh, <laughs> on the front end, immediate to the cessation or the stopping of the illicit substance use, then the risk for withdrawal decreases uh, radically, as does the hopefully risk for repeated intoxications. Uh, the notion, again, being you're not going to get better to stop using the substance. So level 2.1, intensive outpatient treatment, has that same intoxication withdrawal potential as does the outpatient. It's minimal or it's going to be manageable in one withdrawal management, one detoxification. Uh, on dimension two, which is the biomedical conditions, it is also the same as outpatient, none or mild, or if there is a concurrent or coexisting biomedical condition or a complication by causative, by use of the substance, or was there prior to the substance use, then it is going to be, again, uh, adequately taken care of. That person is going to be receiving adequate medical services. Uh, when it comes to dimension two, it's exactly the same then as opioid treatment program and level 2.1 intensive outpatient treatment is once more very much, if not identical then, in terms of the biomedical circumstances as outpatient and opioid treatment program, both level ones, none or mild or receiving adequate medical services. On dimension three, uh, without patient, there is none or mild emotional or behavioral complications, difficulties, uh, again, or as again, receiving adequate behavioral health services as with the medical services. Uh, same for the medication assist, as well as same for intensive outpatient treatment. On dimension four, uh, when it comes to the readiness for change, uh, on an outpatient level, again, this being the lesser restrictive, the less intensive, the uh, lesser need for accountability, there is none or mild readiness for change, or there is moderate readiness for change, but low risk in other dimensions. So there is still the need to generate some sort of motive or help the person besides whatever motivated them in the first place to come in for care. We want to maximize that. Uh, in some ways, we want to add to it. That's what I mean by maximizing uh, what motive is already there when it comes to outpatient level one. Of course, with medication-assist treatment, they may be ready for change, but they can't maintain sobriety sufficient enough to be able to affect that. Again, you have to stop using in order to get better, the illicit substance, that is. And opioid, um, a synthetic opiate such as buprenorphine combined with naloxone, a blocker, is going to uh, make that more possible. Uh, at least on an emotional, psychological level, where probably the real choice comes in. That's where that, uh, the, the, that originates, the etiology. That's where that comes from. When it comes to intensive outpatient treatment, though, it's a little bit different in that, again, it's going to require 
uh, more intervention, more restrictive intervention, more intensive intervention, more accountability, because there's more ambivalence. There is a lack of awareness. There is a need or a requirement of additional support through the stages of change. And again, all change begins with that initial, whatever the motive might be, internal, external motive to stop using. Could be, it's probably, not could be, it will be, troublesome. There's, built, there's got to be, as we recall from prior discussions on the diagnostic criterion, it is always some measure of trouble or difficulty and then an inability to not do the substance or to stop using the substance so that the trouble goes away. Intensive outpatient, again, common sense applied, is going to require then more help because there's less of that readiness for change, particularly in this dimension. Insight or awareness also uh, becomes part of that readiness for change. Again, recognition, uh, maybe self-admission even, that I've got a problem or I'm not going to get better. I can't. (laughs) You may try to make me better. You may try to assist me in becoming better, but I'm not going to cooperate if I have low insight or low awareness. Uh, Probably, it's good to say, sound to say, that denial or lying to oneself is is at least manifest most clearly then in this particular dimension, readiness for change. Because not only does the person, is the person ambivalent at best, but they may actually lack awareness, which means they're in denial. And with that then, There is much that goes into having to do more to stop the illicit substance use from an external source. Internal would be insight and awareness, subjectively inside of oneself. External would be a treatment facility, a treatment provider, family members and friends who even are there before the facility and provider that uh, possibly, again, was the reason Uh, one of the uh, motives for the person to get help uh, in the first place. So intensive outpatient treatment seems to suggest, therefore, that there's a need to continue to present the fact, the reality, until the person is willing to admit it. Uh, How much, how often, uh, what element of force... (laughs) How forcefully, I should say it that way, uh, it is going to be said or done all depends on, once more, the willingness to receive. (laughs) Be open, if you're the addict, to that input, that feedback. If you're open to that, then it will require less. (laughs) We don't have to repeat the message. We don't have to present the message with any sort of valence or force. Uh, We can just basically say, here it is, this is the presentation, these are the facts, this is the reality, and they accept it. That's usually not what's going on, though, in level 2.1 intensive outpatient treatment. 
Typically, what's going on in level 2.1 intensive outpatient treatment is the person is still in denial. So there's a struggle that goes on. I'm one of those individuals, most of my industry would say this, that you can't change anyone until they're ready to change, until they recognize a need for it and a willingness to do it. Now, why I say (laughs) I, most of my industry, although all of us are probably going to say that, what I really am trying to capture, though, is that you can find a way, there will be, there will be motives along the way, uh, and particularly when you get to intensive outpatient treatment, the person is going to get tired of, of all of that, repeating all of that, uh, repeating the facts and the truth, even if they are willing to concede they need to change, they still not be, may be willing sufficient to make the change from an internal locus of control, location of control. In essence, what I'm trying to capture is, yes, it is more intensive. Yes, it is more restrictive. Yes, there is a need to step in and take over to control the situation from an external location of control. But that really isn't going to, in the end, work. It will work sufficient to, once more, sufficient to their being in the program. It may create greater motives to concede the argument, to give in on the addict's part. Uh, And to some extent, the family will feel better because they're finally hearing the words. Maybe even the therapist will feel better because they're hearing the magic words, I am an addict. But do they really mean it? And if it's all external, if you get the sense the only reason they're confessing it, conceding it, is because they're tired. They're worn out. We do not want to brainwash people. That won't work. But if we do it properly and we understand how denial works, and how this component of readiness for change really then as important as it's not using to any ultimate success. You have to stop using the illicit substance before you get start to get better. In the same way, then, readiness for change either has to be comparable or right behind that. It is one of those primary Uh, considerations. It is primary to success. You have to notch that, establish that, or they're not going to get better. Intensive outpatient treatment, of course, can't hurt in any way, shape, or form, even if it does incline itself because of the resistance, persistent resistance, treatment resistance on the part of the addict or as otherwise in a more behavioral health or a medical sort of context, the patient is not wanting to, we're still going to do what we know we need to do, and it's not going to ever harm them. Now, there's probably ways of going about that, and that's why I chose my words, tried to choose my words carefully when I did call it forceful. There is no force as in physical 
There should not be psychological sort of manipulations. Uh, we should not resort to any of that. It doesn't happen in uh, properly uh, run programs where there's sound theory, where the program is built uh, uh, and structured upon a paradigm that is evidence-based of psychotherapy, of theory that is evidence-based, how to change people, how to help people with chemical dependency and substance abuse problems. Uh, it should not resort to a power struggle. Unfortunately, it is easy to fall into that trap. And in some ways, it plays to the advantage of the addict in the sense that they can run the line, not only on themselves, preserve that denial inside of themselves more easily if you fall into that trap, but you can make it an us versus them situation between the program, the theoretical foundations of the program, the way that the psychotherapists that manage and run the program, the actual counselors, the medical providers, if there are, as there would be in an intensive outpatient treatment setting, would then render the treatment uh, to kind of equate to making somebody do something. And of course, again, it's going to feel somewhat edifying if you hear the magic words, I am an addict or as there seems to be on the surface, compliance. But we all know <laughs> that there's many ways to resist while still not conceding compliance, or better yet, wanting to do it for yourself. We call that, in other psychological contexts, it's the very same thing, even if we don't speak of it within the addictions uh, sort of context of treatment, uh, substance use disorders, uh, more general behavioral health concerns. It's passive-aggressive. <laughs> On the surface, there will be all appearance of it's great, it's working, it's fine, I'm cooperating, even to the extent they're going to get better. But the aggressive dimension is you didn't give me the chance, as if, again, I could speak from the addict's perspective, to come up with that on my own, you're just sort of making me comply. And I've seen it on a lesser scale, more subdued, and then I've seen it, unfortunately so, on a more obvious level of you're going to cooperate, and if you don't, there's threat. What's the threat? I don't know. It could be a number of things. Uh, there could be complications legally. There could be health complications. Um, you're not going to get, if it is uh, a program that includes Medicaid, you're not going to get your Suboxone if you don't comply. People, sometimes treatment providers, who are people hopefully too, will resort to such strategies and tactics. That's not the program you want to be in. That's not the best contingency. That is not even a good contingency. That is probably worse than not even a good contingency. That is a bad contingency. Nothing good will come out of that. It is slower. It takes more time. It takes more work. 
It takes more effort. This is on the treatment providing side of it, not just the addict side of it. This is also inclusive of the family to really put that locus of control, that location of control inside or at least internally to make sure it's coming from inside the person rather than outside the person. That's probably, as I might then use another example, besides more general behavioral health concerns, that's probably what happens with a large portion of the prison population, jailed population. They go in, they're forced to conform, they do it passive-aggressively, they don't do it from within themselves internally, they do it because there's bars, (laughs) because doors are locked, because there's guards, and because they know if they don't, then they may actually spend the rest of their life in a situation like that. Now, that brings up another point, and I think that that helps to uh, make that clearer. But getting back now to substance abuse, chemical dependency, substance use disorders, many patients would prefer that over the true freedom that comes from or goes along with and probably ensues, comes from making your own choice out of yourself where the accountability is not in the program or the therapist, where the therapist or the program is not making you comply. It's not more restrictive as with locked doors where you can't get out. It is something that you learn to do within yourself. Yes, external influence does matter even if you've internalized the locus of control because we are social creatures. It is part of our nature to be influenced by the psychosocial environment around us. We've discussed that in previous podcasts. However, if that individual who is the addict doesn't internalize it, accept and receive that it's within them to make the change, and we, as part of facilitating that change, as seeing it therein as an aspect of growth and development, maybe in a general sort of way, all of us should get to that point in life. The most successful of us probably have gotten to that point in life for life. We have to make our own choices. We are accountable to ourselves, but we also, in that, are very efficient at learning from our mistakes. If you wait to get caught, if you depend on somebody else to implement the consequences or to even supply the lessons, it's not as efficient. And if you're really not wanting to do it out of a choice or a good, a really, the only really sound good motive, one inside of yourself to make that life change, it's not going to happen. Happen. Hence, readiness for change, dimension four, again, is as crucial and critical 
as is not using. You're not really going to get better long-term until one, as they say, owns it. Now, you'll get better in that you'll stop using. Again, many people can become uh, quite happy (laughs) over the fact that the addict is no longer using. But it isn't in the way that we want it to be sustainable. It will always require somebody to keep track of the addict to make sure they're no longer an addict. And it's contrary to what we know is the normal course of development, as I spoke earlier, as it correlates to success in life. You don't want to be dependent on somebody else to make those decisions. We call that codependency. And should, again, you need another example of why it doesn't work, ask any family member who has started out trying to be the therapist and possibly turned into the prison guard, is it even if your intentions on both sides of that, from the addict or the family, is to make it better, it doesn't. Codependency does not work. The person that thinks they can make somebody get better is themselves lying in denial and has a very difficult time themselves admitting they are as powerless over the person who is the addict as the addict in that frame of mind without that developmental milestone, we'll call it, again established, they don't believe they have any power over the substance. It's a losing proposition all the way around. Hence, whatever your basis is theoretically for your program, whatever model of psychotherapy you choose to use as theory and then practice coming out of theory needs to be proven, validated, reliable, empirically sound. It will work. It will work not for one, but many, if not all. And it needs to be applied in that manner or fashion. The therapist, and I'll include medical providers that might be part of that program, uh, that intervention, they need to be better than codependent. They need to have confidence themselves, not only in the theory and the practice of that, the psychotherapy, the theoretical orientation, the model, program model, but they have to be pretty sound individuals themselves. They have to be mature. They have to have gone through whatever they needed to go through to accomplish these same milestones of choice, accountability, and in some ways, internally practicing that empirical model. How do you learn from your feedback? How do you take the feedback and then come up with, construct ways to go about making adaptive changes? Again, that's at the heart of all psychotherapy regardless of whether it is turned towards substance use or addiction. 
But if your therapist is not much better than the patient or is in many cases maybe worse, it's not going to work. If the program model, no matter how sound it appears on the surface, is not being implemented by mature, grown-up individuals who themselves are psychologically sound, then you are probably the blind leading the blind. Why do I say this? One, as a consumer, my audience listening to the podcast, I'm sharing this so that I make you an informed consumer. I'm sharing this so that you can recognize your own pitfalls, struggles, traps you may have fallen into. If you're the addict, so you'll know. If you're the family member, so you'll know. But in some ways, our industry, the industry, of substance abuse chemical dependency treatment still believes the only way to recover, to treat somebody to the point of recovery is to yourself be a recovering addict. I am not sure. (laughs) It can certainly help if you've done that well. It can certainly help. You would have better empathy, you would have better perspective if you've gone through it. But if you can't already tell, (laughs) there is the issue or the potential issue or problem, have they really worked through it? Are they continuing to so-called work their program of recovery? Is there risk of contamination? Being with addicts on a day-to-day basis Are they possibly at risk or vulnerable to regressing rather than progressing? Uh, And I think recovery is something certainly most people will say. You have to work daily. You The program, you have to see it in light of. It's a constant growth experience. You've got to every day apply it, become stronger, or you're going to end up relapsing or going the opposite direction. Now, that does not mean addicts can't treat addicts, but it also does not mean people who have never gone through an addiction in that way doesn't know how to treat an addict. Maybe it is even a partial argument. (laughs) Maybe it is more than partial. Maybe it is a full and complete argument for an alternative that it could be even better that a person not know addiction in the same way, but have accomplished those milestones. Now, as much as I say that, I am also inclined to believe we're all addicts to some extent. It is the human nature to have not only this social sort of component, social creatures, need for others, But there's always going to be the risk of some dependency that comes from that, either dependent upon people or the material, the resources that go with those relationships for our survival. That's not bad. That's not evil. That's not wrong. That's not dangerous, except you would not learn to own it for yourself. Because though those individuals around you 
might be healthy people. They may be actually with great motive. They may be compassionate in all the right terms and ways. They may be sound, not only intellectually, knowledge-wise, but in terms of virtue and character as they've grown up, as they've completed the course of normal human development, they've notched all the milestones, they're operating as functional and adaptive adults. But they still could have a bad day or a bad week or a bad month. And there needs to be recognition of that. Actually, if anything, when it comes to treatment, there is great encouragement for all providers of behavioral health services to make sure that they at least have a moment, (laughs) regularly so, of touching base with somebody else to make sure they are still themselves healthy that they're doing it the right way. Why is that such a great risk? Because as much as I believe all of us have the potential to be addicts, I know all of us have the potential to lie to ourselves. It's called defense mechanisms. It does not have to mean that we're uh, unable to see facts or put together facts in a way to get feedback in such a way as to see the reality of a circumstance. However, when circumstances, situations in our life present things that are overwhelming, that there is no immediate answer to, maybe our psychological sort of resources are somewhat compromised, run thin because there's many things going on in our life at any particular time, we have a tendency to table things, put them over here while we tend to the things that we need to. And I hope there's included in that some prioritization, things that are most important. But how do you allow something that is imminently, at least potentially, going to harm you to sit there except in denial. Because if you don't practice a defense mechanism, it will drive you crazy in that there's way too much. The resources, again, the psychological as a resource is running, wearing thin. The margin is becoming thin in our ability to manage all of that. Now, who am I talking about? It could be, sounds like, the patient. But I am, again, still speaking of the provider. That needs to be as important, recognized, hopefully in an ethical way, that goes without saying the patient should not have to be worried about that or concerned about that at all. But it's probably worth my saying Because we all know there's times and places where you're promised something and then the delivery of that does not match up to the promise. Oh, yes, I can do that. Here are my credentials. Here's my years of experience. Here's my degrees on the wall. Here's my certifications on the wall. I am going to, this is the success rate of our program. But if you're in a program and there is a provider and it's not happening. You know now, at least you have some idea, 
of that possibility, keep it at some level of awareness as you or as a family member, your family member is going through treatment. That's why there's always choice in treatment. It is a patient right to choose. And it's not just choice. It's as we're doing on the program, the podcast. It's informed consent. You need to be aware of these things. And if for whatever reason you want a second opinion, find it. Search it out. That way you know that whatever you're being told, that way you know when you speak to the provider, you'll have a sense for where they are, how they're themselves, how they are performing, how they're not only performing in their role and responsibilities as a behavioral health provider, but also as a person. That's crucial and that's critical. But this notion of readiness for change, again, needs to come back to that notion as well, that then the blind can't lead the blind. A person in denial or who still has issues, who themselves in their denial, in their defense, defense mechanisms, they may be lying to themselves, are not going to be able to see that properly enough to remove the potential for that to interfere with the patient's success. That is ethically wrong. That needs to be called out, but don't just indiscriminately call it out because the patient isn't getting better. Speak to the provider. Seek out a second opinion. Hopefully it won't happen. If it should be, then that's good feedback to the provider. They will hopefully continue to make corrections. If they are having a bad day, then the next day, next session, next time will be better. An intensive outpatient program, though, requires that level of objectivity from a program standpoint, a programmatic standpoint, as well as a provider standpoint, so that when the patient comes in, it is a matter of not only presenting the reality, it is a matter of encouraging the person to make their own, the patient, to make their own appraisal, to learn how to make decisions for themselves, to be able to do that again from an internal locus of control, not just being forced to do that. Because hopefully one day they will not be in an intensive outpatient treatment mode. There will not be the need for that level of care. Hopefully if they are returned in a maintenance sort of dimension or phase uh, of treatment to outpatient uh, even then, the great hope would be they may one day be able to stop outpatient care, that they can manage their life on their own without the need for that level of assistance. And again, once more, I'm not speaking of opioid treatment program, medication assist treatment. I'm talking about making psychologically analyzing data and making good decisions for themselves. That is part of uh, actualizing all the psychological capacity. Again, in prior podcasts, we have discussed how people get arrested along the way. 
they need to not only emotionally mature, they need to at times psychologically mature and socially mature. And those represent developmental milestones if accomplished, again, in regression, They've been returned to an earlier level of functioning that needs to be reestablished before they can reclaim the higher level of functioning or possibly because of a traumatic event. We've discussed that also in a prior podcast. They're not able, they were not able to finish the developmental course as prescribed, genetically encoded. They did not become adults. They stopped growing up when they were children. They're emotionally dysregulated. They do not know how to problem solve. They do not know how to apply the higher cognitive functions to manage their emotions, to make better choices. And it's the responsibility of the treatment program to realize that, that that all goes into not only a readiness for change, but the change process itself. We want the patient to mature, grow, develop that capacity inside themselves rather than make a person, tell a person, solve the problem for the person on our side of it instead of allowing them then the chance to make those choices for themselves. So, intensive outpatient treatment does take into consideration readiness to change. The awareness, the insight is needing to be there. And with that, when it says, or as the ASAM, when it says ASAM would uh, identify as uh, on that dimension readiness to change, a requirement for support in the stages of change, that's what we're speaking of facilitating emotional, cognitive, psychological operations so that that individual can begin to do that for themselves, not needing to be told what to do. Of course, with intensive outpatient treatment, with that notion of, within that notion of intensive, more restrictive, the relapse, the risk for relapse or continued use would be high risk, whereas with outpatient, uh, non-medication assist, it's the person can maintain abstinence with minimal support. Same with the opioid treatment program, level one outpatient, except they need the medicine then to make that possible. But when it comes to intensive outpatient treatment, there is a high risk of relapse. They need to, again, be seen more often. They need to have these facts, this truth, this reality of what they are, this understanding, this knowledge in the front of their minds so that the denial is disengaged in such a way, the defense mechanisms are managed in such a way that the person can begin to manage life stress, adapt, on their own, not requiring someone else to do it for them. Otherwise, that is known as codependency. On dimension six, level 2.1 intensive outpatient treatment, living environment, 
with outpatient, the recovery environment is supportive or has coping skills. They've got a good home environment. It's fairly functional, if not well-functioning. They have family members who are not at least leaning more toward codependency, understand this important element of internal locus control to give that person the opportunity to learn to do that for themselves. That requires then some time frame or dimension of time, can be supportive and facilitative, hopefully as the treatment provider and the program would be, actually should be participating in the treatment in that way as a family member. With opioid treatment program, again, level one, outpatient care, the recovery environment is the same, supportive or has coping skills. But when it comes to intensive outpatient treatment, obviously the recovery environment, I say again, obviously because it should be clear by now, the recovery environment is not supportive There's a moderate level of coping because we're not going to put them in a 24-hour situation. They're going to be coming several hours a week, maybe two, three, four hours at a time, two or three days a week, two or three interventions a week, multiple sessions, but they'll go home at night. So there has to be some level of coping, but we can't count that that environment is healthy enough or they would not likely be in treatment and, according to the American Society of Addiction Medicine, be requiring a more intensive and restrictive care, such as once more level 2.1, instead of outpatient level 1, intensive outpatient treatment. They need that extra dimension of accountability that that brings. The living environment is important. So when it comes to intensive outpatient treatment, the most important factors would be then the readiness to change. That is an ambivalent or lack of awareness, which differs from uh, level one or 0.5 care. Also, the relapse continued use potential, dimension five, high risk as opposed to lesser risk, and then also dimension six, living environment, an environment that is able to survive, cope, but likely not well and certainly not supportive in the way we've described it in the podcast today, not codependent, includes individuals who themselves ensure a high level, high quality of care, level of functioning, are adaptive themselves so that the individual that is receiving the help, the addict, gets the help they need. Otherwise, they're going to regress. Or otherwise, really it's not, well, it always has a dimension of regression, but we could say they're going to just simply continue the course that they're on which is regressive. They're not going to make good decisions to stop. If they should have motive to stop, they're not going to have enough support to maintain the motive. And once they use again, they're really setting themselves right back up 
where they started in terms of their even beginning the journey of recovery, of abstinence. So once more, my intention with the podcast would be to inform so that you can make informed decisions, to inform the addict as well as the family member. But should it be that just the information, and really this is along the lines of early intervention, right? Point five, this is educational. But my hope would be to prepare you if you know somebody, which we all do, if you're in a position yourself where you're a practicing addict, this will help you to begin the first step, which is, I know I need help. Somewhere close to that, I must stop using long enough to engage in help. And with that, take advantage of, as this may, again, encourage, motivate, another word for encouragement, the podcast, you to make those changes, get with somebody who can then begin to add another level of that or layer of that to what we're doing with the podcast. Now, should you want to communicate with me, I would love to hear from you. I post the email address. As I say in all the uh, podcasts, as I've said in all the podcasts, if I, for whatever reason, am not in the best position to help you, I will assist you in locating someone who can, whether it's geography, uh, financial, whatever it is. If it's just that <laughs> the time you need the help is not conducive to the time that I could offer it, I would be glad to locate another provider, connect you up with other resources, whether they be in the category provider, support groups, whether that's, again, for the addict or if it's just for the family. Reach out to me. I'll be glad to help you. Now, what we're going to do on our next podcast is kind of once more kind of summarize this level 2.1 intensive outpatient treatment, and then move to the next level of care, which is 2.5 partial hospitalization. But until then, I wish you the best. I am, again, very appreciative of you joining me today on the podcast. And uh, the, <laughs> the name of the podcast is Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. And let this be an invitation for you to join me on our next podcast. Thanks.